Bet you wish you were here. Welcome back to my podcast. I hope you've been enjoying it. Welcome back to my podcast. It's nearly over and that's it. Don't fall apart and don't be sad. Cause here's what I want you to do. Ring up, go loud. Ring up our media, go loud and say that you loved it. And did you want to hear another season of it that your man's voice is lovely? No, I'm sure the doubting Hamashes out there listening are probably kind of thinking to themselves, well, you said it was going to be a unionist section at the end. And your last guest, sure, she's converted over to the dark side. She's a United Irelander now, so that doesn't count at all. This whole podcast is a scam, they're kind of thinking, right? Well, no need to cancel your cards, guys, because now the end of the podcast, I have a one-two, pow-pow, of two unionist voices that are pro-union, unionist unionists. And if I do say so myself, they're two cracking interviews, uh, two very different types of defence of the union, and you'll see what I mean (laughs) pretty soon when you listen to this. Next interview with the first of the two a guy i would describe as a lovable looper a man after my own heart his name is dr ian malcolm or dr owen malcolm if you're on uh, twitter if you're looking for him on twitter dr underscore owen underscore malcolm he is from a protestant unionist background yet plot twist he is a fluent irish speaker actually t- teaches irish and is a regular contributor to irish language media including radio nagwail tukta TG Cahar and Radio Falta. He works on both sides of the border. He is an accomplished musician and his songs are an absolute hoot. He gives himself, I was going to give him a plug at the end, but he's that kind of guy, he's, he's on it like he gave himself a plug towards the end of the interview, so I won't do it now. Actually, I will do it now. I mean, why would I be stingy with the plugs? You know, there's no harm in giving another plug, says you, for an absolute out and out legend and a gent. He is available on Available. If you'd like to subscribe to his YouTube page, it's called No Jigs, and he's on Twitter a good bit there, at Dr. Underscore Owen Underscore Malcolm. And I would say double check that, but I'm, I'm nearly sure. Well, I'm reading it, so I'm, I'm certain. Now, as well as being a hoot, as you're about to hear, the man knows his stuff. We talk bigotry, Brexit, borders, protocols, as well as different types of crisps and chocolate, and how the Eurovision Song Contest changed his life. Ian Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. How are you doing? I think you've got a bit of a cold. I certainly do. As we say in Irish, I better give you a quick lesson now. Ta sledan orum. Repeat after me. Ta sledan orum. Literally, it means there is a cold upon me. <laughs> Straight in with an Irish lesson that I that I badly need. So, Ian, can I start off with a big question? What was it like growing up a unionist? I think, Ty, that uh, our unionism in our family was never very overtly expressed. To be honest now, we never were an incredibly political family. My father and mother weren't members of any party. And uh, I was never encouraged uh, to think in any particular way. Indeed, my dad and uh, we're very much uh, from Protestant unionist background, but not big unionist, uh, i.e. we didn't take part in uh, unionism politics. And to be honest, whenever I was growing up, I would imagine, Tag, I was probably about 12 before I realised there were differences between Catholics and Protestants. It wasn't a sheltered upbringing, just in a way. 
the troubles were going on and our family tried not to expose us to what was going outside. Having said that, yes, there were some orangey things that we did. My father wasn't in the orange order. I'm not in the orange order, never have been. But we would have gone along to the 12th of July parades, which I enjoyed, even though the first time we went along to one was in a wee place called Moira, about five miles from where I live in Lurgan. And I remember hearing my first Lambeg drum and I uh, virtually jumped out of my skin because it was so loud. Over the years, however, I've developed a real affection for the Lambeg drum. I enjoyed the 12th as a kid. I remember we went along to the bonfire and I didn't like bonfires. I decided that very quickly because I saw that there was fire didn't necessarily like that and there were drunk people and I quickly realised that fires and drunk people don't mix terribly well at all so I've never been a big fan of bonfires. In summary we were lucky in that we weren't brought up in any way that could remotely be described as bigoted. I was never taught that's the other side you don't like Catholics etc. There was none of that in our family at all so I was very privileged in that regard I guess. Um, tell me about your where the interest in the Irish language came from. I think there's there's kind of there's two parts of the story, isn't there? I suppose there are really two parts to my story of involvement with the Irish language. First of all, whenever I was a kid growing up, my dad, he had learned some Irish years before. As a Protestant, he had gone to lessons on the wrong side of town, as it were. He was making good progress by all accounts. But then at some stage, the IRA decided to launch a thing called the Border Campaign, Operation Harvest, at the end of the 50s, start of the 60s, and he didn't feel safe going to the classes any longer. But that said, he had learned enough to intrigue me. And whenever I was a kid going to bed at night, he would say things like, EOI, August College, I have another lesson for you here, Ty. Good night and sleep well. Also, he was very knowledgeable about place names and about Irish history. And I remember... If we were out for that dreadful thing known as the Sunday afternoon drive, I think every family in Ireland, Protestant or Catholic, has endured the Sunday afternoon drive as kids. If we were going through a town that we hadn't been in before, say, for example, Armagh or Portadown or Dromore, I would have always said to Daddy, Daddy, what does Dromore mean? And because he had a little bit of Irish, he was able to explain to me. But because I was still aware of my fraud background, I would have another question for him. And it was always, Daddy, after he told me what remote or whatever it meant, I would say, Daddy, is this a Catholic town or a Protestant town? <laughs> so that's one way in which, became, which I became interested in the Irish language. And I think at that stage, even as a kid, I knew there was more to language than English. If you think about it, names like Cork and names like Belfast and all, they're so different from Birmingham and London and names like that. I think you instinctively know that there's something else that isn't English. Mm. That was my first connection with the language. And I suppose that seed stayed with me for many, many years until I was able to learn Irish for real on my own terms. Didn't have the opportunity in school because being a Protestant it wasn't taught in our education system. But the other thing that inspired me to learn Irish was, believe it or not, the Eurovision Song Contest. I remember being a kid, you know, through the 70s and all, listening, watching the, watching the show every year. It was one of the highlights of my year. What I remember was the uh, other countries, France and Germany and Belgium, etc., singing songs in their own languages. And I think that exposed me to the concept that English is not the only language. There was something magical about listening to a song sung in French or German or Spanish. Unfortunately, the Eurovision did away with that regulation uh, many, many years ago. And now uh, it appears to me that most companies will sing in English, just obviously because it can reach a wider audience and perhaps a broader appeal. But for me, if they're singing in English, they've lost that appeal. So they wouldn't get my vote. It would be a nul point for them from me. <laughs> 
Fantastic. And can I ask, have you received hassle now for the fact that your background mixed with the fact that you promote and teach the Irish language? Do you get hassle either online or in real life for pursuing that? Oh, not so much now, Tag, thank goodness. But it certainly did way back whenever I started. I started learning Irish for real. Now, I've been interested in Irish before that, but started learning for real around about 1995. So that was, uh, was during the peace process time and before the Good Friday Agreement. Whenever I was working in a place in Belfast, I'm not going to name it. It's a very, very well-known place, but uh, I suppose for legal reasons, I better not mention it. But I was working there for a number of years. People were grand and they were all very friendly and all. There was one particular section within the uh, within this place I worked. And I can only describe the people in that uh, department as out-and-out bigots. They were really friendly with me for a number of years until they discovered I was an Irish speaker and then it changed it changed just overnight from all right Ian how are you uh it came just angry glances I know that very often talk behind my back and that my nickname became wait for it the chuck as in Chucky R. <laughs> Relations between myself and those folk broke down, but they were unreconstructed bigots. And sad to say that uh, people are still there with those sort of attitudes. But generally, tied attitudes towards the language are changing. But I really must tell you a little story. My neighbours around here, I live in Lurgan, in a fairly loyalist part of Lurgan. Mm. Now everybody knows I'm an Irish speaker and nobody has a problem with that. But they did in the early days. One neighbour, he became very, very distrustful of me until he had a little query about Irish one time. He told me that his mother came from a place called Anaganoon, which is outside Lurgan. Despite not being a fan of the Irish language, he asked me what that meant. And he was delighted whenever I was able to explain to him and that reset a relationship. Just to give you an idea to perhaps of the sort of area in which I live another neighbour. Now, he would be very, very old-fashioned in his views. He would be, let me say, the DUP is far too moderate for him. He would be a Jim <laughs> Allister fan. Right. He certainly hasn't any truck with the Irish language, but he's come to accept that I am an Irish speaker. Whenever I'm doing a piece on radio or TV, I let them know, and they would all gather around their TV or radio and listen to it and say, Ian, you were great on the radio the other day, even though they didn't understand what you meant. But at one stage, after the peace process really got going, this guy, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you his name because he's not going to be listening to this, so he's called Derek. After the peace process began, for the first time ever, Derek decided to take his family down to County Wicklow for a holiday. Now, somebody who'd been more used to Groomsport and Port Rush and Port Stewart and Donahue going over the border was a really, really big jump. Had a caravan. So he packed the family into the car and they went down to Wicklow. It was the first time ever over the border. And I was really amazed that he decided to do this. Well, whenever he came back, I asked him, how was it? People would talk about the weather. People would talk about the lovely beaches. Can you talk about beaches in Wicklow? I'm not sure. <laughs> the lovely mountains and all the rest of it. And uh, Derek's, uh, Derek's response was, oh, the roads were terrible. The roads were terrible. But it was really nice. It was really nice where it was stayed. And you know the best of it? And this was the killer line. I love this. I still recount this many a time. He said, and you know the best of it? The wee woman who ran the caravan park. She was one of ours. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my god that's great like on the topic of unionist or, or loyalist humor then i don't want to put you on the spot and i'm not assuming that you've seen my uh sketches i just wondered if you have seen of anything i've done it, is it 
in what way is it offensive? I'd love to get a unionist perspective on that. Or can unionists tend to be a little bit uptight? Because I actually want to reach out and kind of learn from mistakes here. So, Oh gosh, Tig, you have not pushed it too far at all. No, the sketch with folks wearing different shirts representing different countries. I love that. That's the sort of humour that I really love. I have no issue with that whatsoever. I think, to be honest, Tig, whenever you go online, particularly on Twitter, probably on Facebook as well, I'm not a big Facebook person, but that is where you get the extreme reactions. And I've seen this on both sides, Republican, nationalist, unionist, loyalist, but particularly loyalist and a Republican. It seems that whenever something that people might think is transgressing their beliefs and traditions, then they take that as a personal insult and they go into rabies mode. And I think that's what you were encountering there. I can assure you the vast majority of folks that I know, if they watch that tag, they would think it's funny. They wouldn't think there's anything on the word about it whatsoever. So no, you're not pushing the boat out too far. And I would encourage you to continue in that vein. But yes, some people are incredibly sensitive, but you wouldn't have got responses from the sensitive people. You would have got responses from the nutcases, those negative responses. And we have them on both communities. Only have to think about on Twitter, the number of accounts, Republican accounts that will launch into attack mode, talking about West Brits and planters. Mm. Uh, It's exactly the same on the loyalist side as well. You can just turn the terminology around. So I wouldn't be remotely worried about those sort of idiots. In fact, I'll find something that I do. I'll be fairly active on Twitter. What I do now, if somebody follows me, I would very, very care. You know, if it looks like somebody who might be a wee bit dodgy, I would look at their profile and if they're using terms like Lundies and West Brits and Republican sympathizers, anything like that from either community, then I would mute those folks so they'd never have to put up their dribble again. That was fascinating. Is Brexit a a direct threat to the Union, in your opinion, Ian? I would say yes, but there could be advantages to it if it's properly handled through the Northern Ireland Protocol or similar arrangements. I will be honest, I did not vote for Brexit. I thought it was a mad idea right from the word go, because even though the European Union has its flaws, it's a bit like being in a club. If you're in the club, you can argue your case. Whenever uh, the UK voted to leave the European Union, that voice was lost. That voice, the the UK's voice, is not being heard in Europe. And I think that's very, very sad, because uh, the UK is one of the major players on this continent. And uh, I think it's very, very sad that UK views in Europe are now silent. It's far better to argue your case from within than without. But at the time, too, I could foresee the problems. I didn't foresee the protocol per se, but I knew that the European Union was going to have to have a border somewhere because uh, we do need a touch of common sense. And I'll talk, actually, I'll talk a wee bit about the border in just a moment. Actually, just a yeah. thought occurred to me there, Tag, which you might be interested in. Yes, please. I remember that the DUP particularly were going all out for Brexit and they regarded the the vote as being a great victory. Of course, we saw what happened subsequently. They got a Brexit. They wanted a hard Brexit. They pretty much uh, got that. In Westminster, they had the balance of power. Theresa May offered a deal, which would have been good, I think, for everybody on both sides. Sadly, the DUP wanted a harder Brexit than that. Then they put their faith in the European Reform Group, a cabal of uh, Tory MPs who would be ultra-right-wing and really wouldn't think too much about Northern Ireland. Eventually, they put their faith in Boris Johnson, and Boris Johnson, Mr. Trust, 
as he is, he soon through to farm showed where his true colours lie. He was thinking of an expedient solution for England specifically, never mind Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. Consequently then the DUP ended up with Boris Johnson who was their great friend. He turned out not to be their great friend and then we end up with the Brexit with the protocol. And the protocol in one way, it is damaging to Northern Ireland but Tyke, I do think that if people work their way around it, and perhaps the protocol is a bad name and perhaps it needs to be re-nosed. Perhaps we need some, I'm not saying renegotiation, we need some tinkering, more than tinkering around the edge. We need some structural changes to it. Perhaps a new name to make it acceptable. But I think the protocol could actually be a very, very workable basis for the advancement of Northern Ireland because of the advantages it gives Northern Ireland in terms of access to UK markets, access to European markets. We could see a situation where major companies want to relocate to Northern Ireland because of that dual advantage. So ultimately, it is bizarre. We look at the DUP and Jim Allister of the TUV frothing at the mouth. But ultimately, the the protocol or the, the current arrangements, if modified, could be the basis for sustaining Northern Ireland rather than destroying it. Perhaps that's a completely off-the-wall idea. I haven't heard people talk like that, but that's the way I think. I do think there are advantages there. Seriously, though, leaving the European Union was a mistake. Though in one way, I, I do like the border. I do like I'm a big fan of the border, and do you know why? For years and years, whenever I travel down south over the border, saw a change, of course. We don't see it in the same in-your-face way as we did many, many years ago. But the first thing I do whenever I go over the border, I stock up on Cadbury's chocolate and Tato Crisp because they're different than either side of the border. And my big concern is if there was a United Ireland, would all the chocolate and crisps on the island be the same? No, I want choice. (laughs) That's so great. Actually, that segues into something I was going to say. So I understand that you presumably don't want any kind of a United Ireland. And obviously, you're not a dyed in the wool person, you know, in any way at all. But you don't want a United Ireland. But if it were to happen down the line, how could nationalists north and south make you feel more welcome and respected, aside from extra choice around uh, crisps and chocolate? Well, I certainly don't want a United Ireland, but unlike Arlene Foster, who a couple of years ago said that if there was United Ireland, that she would be on the plane to England or somewhere else, high speed. No, I mean, were there United Ireland? I'm for staying. I think it's important that people hear the voice of Ian Malcolm on so many, many different matters. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity on this podcast, indeed. I actually lived in Dublin for a while. I was working down in DCU in the Irish language section. Ultimately, Tag, I know that people on both sides of the border are the same because we all have the same concerns. We have the same concerns, hospital waiting lists, housing, fuel costs, all of those things. People are the same. The only thing that changes when you go over the border apart from the politics is the action. So as people, we have a lot in common. Politically, we don't have that in common. And that perhaps is where the difficulty lies. Now, could a nationalist in the uh, Republic make a... Uh, Madastel calls it the free state, by the way, so I'm going to call it the free state here. So could the free state be made more welcoming to unionists? Yes, it could. But uh, that would be a major structural debate, which I, I, I would imagine would take many years. You're talking about flags, you're talking about emblems, you're talking about anthems, all those things. Now, by the way, I'm quite happy to write a new anthem for uh, United Ireland in both Irish and English, even though I don't really want United Ireland, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but 
There's a lot of hard work to be done. As I said, I don't want a United Ireland, but if a United Ireland came, I would play my part and accept my place in the new dispensation. I think people, whatever their politics, whatever their concepts, whatever their ideas, will have to learn to work together because ultimately Ireland is a small island on the fringe of Europe. Now, I'm not going to say together we're stronger. That sounds like a political slogan. It sounds like advocacy for the United Ireland as well. But I do think we need to work together and we do need to cooperate. And it's sad for us whenever we see disputes like the one that arose over Michael D not attending the event in Armagh. I don't want to get into the politics of that, but I think it shows that there is a schism still between unionism and nationalism. And I think it's important that people on both sides of the border, people on both traditions work hard trying to ameliorate that situation. So there's a lot of work lies ahead of us, but uh, hopefully there's a willingness there to do it. And let's be honest too, Ty, the poisonous atmosphere that we had perhaps 20, 30 years ago, that's not there to the same extent. There's still political rivalry, the old rhetoric. Thank God the violence isn't there. And we must, everybody must work together to make sure that the lunatics don't take over the asylum again. In terms of the future of unionism, you see there recently, I'm sure you're aware, Jeffrey Donaldson trying to bandy together all unionist parties to effectively keep Sinn Féin out. And in fairness to him, he's actually acknowledging that that's the plan. There's no subterfuge, like it's literally we're just going to band together to keep Demons out. What is the future of unionism from your perspective? Like, could you sell the union to our listeners? Why would the North be better off staying in the union? Because I actually haven't heard a lot of that from unionism recently. It's just, we can't have them get into power. And that indeed is one of the great problems of unionism. And it's not a recent thing, Tag. It's something that goes a very, very long way back. Unionism, very often, since its exception, hasn't been in touch with real people. We go back to the foundation of Northern Ireland and even before, yes, we go back to the foundation of Northern Ireland and the creation of the border and the two-state solution. Unionism, I've always thought, was very, very detached from the people. And I don't just mean the Catholic people. I think unionism was very, very detached from working class Protestant voters as well. At one stage, it was a vibrant Labour Party in Northern Ireland after partition. Now, certain things happened to take that off the political scene. But unionism has never been very good at representing people. I think uh, what happened is, uh, it was always said, if you go and pin an orange sash on a donkey or a goat, people would vote for that. I think to a certain degree that was what happened. In the early days, unionism was represented by the big house tradition. Think about all these large, Brookborough and Carson and Craig, well, not Carson, but Craig, etc. They were all big house kind of people and they represented an upper crust unionism and they didn't have that real level of contact with ordinary people. So if they didn't have a level of contact with ordinary Protestants on the street, they had even less of a contact with ordinary Catholics. And for me, Ty, the problem of Northern Ireland right from the word go was that unionism never ever made any attempt to outreach the Catholics and try and sell the benefits of Northern Ireland being part of the UK. Now we can talk about the benefits of Northern Ireland in a sort of ebb and flow way because if you look at the Republic and Northern Ireland side by side we see that financial fortunes have ebbed and flowed over the years. So there's one time whenever you can point to definite advantages in the Republic and say well I mean, look at the economy there, it's grand, it's, it's booming and uh, United Ireland would be a good thing. There's other times whenever the uh, economy in the South has tanked and the economy in the UK broadly, Northern Ireland has always been a little bit weak in terms of economy, but in the UK in general, and as part of that, we in Northern Ireland do benefit from that. There are times then whenever, there's no expression in Irish, rubble and argy, whenever the tail's up, whenever Northern Ireland's tail is up economically. So the question of economic benefits, I don't think we can really base the arguments for you or the arguments for a United Ireland around that, because this is something that changes over time. 
what we'll have to do is just take things as they are. And unionism really must get out there and say, well, look, this is why it's good to be in the United Kingdom. And they could point to, for example, the NHS free at the point of delivery. Now, as we all know, the NHS is under incredible strain at the moment, just like every health service in the world. But that is one great advantage that Northern Ireland has. And there are others, like I, I point out, Lurgan and County Amar, that's my hometown. So Lurgan is, Lurgan is a great advantage to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think these islands will look like in 10 or even 20 years time? It's just something that I'm asking everyone. Do you think like Scotland will be independent, for instance? Can the union, as a unionist or somebody from a unionist background, can and will the union survive? Well, that uh, takes me back to the previous point I made. Then the unionism really, it must try and sell the benefits of Northern Ireland uh, being in the UK to people from a moderate Catholic nationalist background. That's an essential. No unionist leader has done that so far. I think uh, Peter Robinson hinted at it a number of years ago. Unfortunately, it wasn't carried through. That needs to happen. We need to see what way the Northern Ireland Protocol and our relationship with Europe works out. As I mentioned earlier, that could prove to be a great advantage for Northern Ireland and uh, ultimately it could help to make Northern Ireland more sustainable. So there are those pro items. On the con side, I think we need to be very wary of uh, Scottish devolution. I think if the United Kingdom does start to break up in that way, then I think we will see growing demand for a united Ireland and I think even moderate unionists could perhaps be tempted down that particular line if they see that Scotland is breaking off. And that would be a heartbreak for traditional unions who always look to that link with Scotland as being there, our natural brothers. You think about the affection for Glasgow Rangers, you think about the Orange Order in Glasgow, etc. You think about all those loyal ties and of course cultural ties as well because so many people in Northern Ireland are from Scots heritage it would be from uh, from the Highlands from the Lowlands etc so you have that very very close connection between Ireland and Scotland which goes, goes way back thousands of thousands of years actually but politically that's a very important to a lot of unionists and if that were to be diminished by Scottish independence well I think that could create a different atmosphere altogether and it would be much harder in those circumstances for unionist politicians to argue the case to maintain Northern Ireland as part of the UK because I think they might actually find moderate unionists wavering on the border issue as well. So it's a really big question, Tig. And no, I don't have a crystal ball, but that's my best guess. That's fantastic. Ian, I'm just thinking to myself there, we're coming towards the end. I'm just thinking to myself, like, first of all, I've really, really, really enjoyed talking to you and talking to you on the phone as well separately. And I was kind of thinking to myself, whether there's constitutional change or not, I think the spirit in which you carry yourself and that you do your work, you're kind of reaching out anyway. So it's almost, I wouldn't say it's irrelevant whether it's constitutional change or not, but I think what you're doing with your work and as I say, your enthusiasm, your stuff with the Irish language, that's, I think that's the future of, of this island irrespective of conversations around constitutional change. So you're an absolute gentleman. Thank you so much for giving me your time. And I don't want to put any pressure on you, but I would be a big fan of your music. And there's a rumor floating around that you were thinking of ending this delightful podcast with a song. Any truth in those rumors? There would indeed be, Tag. I have my ukulele uh, fully charged and ready to go. <laughs> As indeed am I. I'm not sure what the voice is going to sound like too much with this cold. Now, I can find out. Uh, well, I think everybody will know this tune, but I'm going to call it Ansaish Achai Ma'ahar. I suppose it's better said to if I'm only going to do the short version. If anybody wants to hear the full version, I can go to my YouTube channel, which is N-O-J-I-J-S. No jigs. And that's because I don't play jigs, only play reels. Okay, and such a kite mahar. We'll give you a quick blast of that. <clears throat> 
Ian Malcolm, Gorov Mila Mahavlet, and thank you so so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, buddy. For in a fancier road, Gormoy got tag and just Lord Slat. Pleasure. I just think that is absolutely class. Like <laughs> the song in particular is just. Oh my god. And I'd like to say there now as well, that was actually one of the first interviews I recorded, so I'm a bit of a mess, I'm a bit techly. I think it's good to review your own performance all the time. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing technically. Kind of a lot of kind of nervous laughter. I was like, oh god, like, you know, I was a bit Yeah, I was a bit all over the place. But luckily Ian was on the ball and super professional and an absolute delight to deal with. And I think he comes across so, so well. And I just touch on one point that Ian makes there. Because you've heard the interview. Like, you make up your own mind. I'm not telling you what to feel at all. Do you know what I mean? It's not that type of a, of a day at all. But I just would reflect on one thing that Ian said, which I thought was fascinating. And it echoes something, actually, that Billy Hutchinson says in a few interviews I've listened to of his. Where he kind of just challenges the idea that in the North there was an oppressing group, namely Unionists, Loyalists. And there was the oppressed in the nationalist and Catholic. One had loads of cash and power and the other had nothing. Now, it's kind of indubitable that the Catholics and nationalists were second class citizens since the foundation of Northern Ireland for most of the 20th century. Very few would dispute that fact. But I suppose what Billy Hutchinson and Ian in this interview challenge is the idea that the average working class Protestant on the street was full of cash and full of power. That does not seem to be the case at all. And Ian articulates much better than I could. That is one of the problems with unionism in the North right from the get-go. That it doesn't understand or represent ordinary people from either community. Like that the kind of monolith of unionism was out of touch. So I thought that was really interesting. Because certainly I, I, it's something that it was enlightening for me. I kind of imagined that there was just one downtrodden group really. And the reality seems to be that the ruling class is unionist and loyalist and they were kind of doing okay. But that arguably the other two sides were left to pit against each other. One with probably significantly more power and control and protection from the state in all sorts of ways. But not exactly flying it with cash or opportunities either. Now guys that brings me to the end. I can hear a bit of hoovering going on outside the door here. So I better bring this uh, um, podcast to an end. You know I can beat most things but I can't beat the noise of a good hoover. Thank you so much, my friends. Join me for, I can't believe I'm saying this, but what will actually be the last episode? Oh, it's a cracker. It's a crackpot. You're great guys and girls and gals and goos. And um, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye-bye.
Bet you wish you were here.